Well, good morning, church. All right, got half of you here this morning. I'm glad to see you today. Uh, Welcome to our neighbors. Um, It is Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to the dads. Super appreciate you. You are needed. Um, And so as we begin this morning, if it's all right, I'm just going to pause and I'll pray um, for a couple of minutes. And then I'll invite you to pray together with me. It's our habit to pray together the disciples' prayer. And so the words are on the screen if you'd like to pray out loud. Um, At the very least, uh, let's bow our hearts together and let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord our God, creator and redeemer of all. You father us from all eternity, giving life to creation and pouring your love into all that you have made. From the beginning, we have known you as Father, and all our families have their origin in you. Through the love of earthly fathers, you give us a glimpse of your everlasting love, and we give thanks for these fathers who strive to balance the demands of work and marriage and children with an honest awareness of both joy and sacrifice. And we pray for those fathers who, lacking a good model of a father, have worked to become good fathers. We thank you for those fathers who by their own account were not always there for their children, but who continue to offer those children now grown their love and support. We give thanks for those fathers who despite divorce have remained in their children's lives and for those fathers whose children are adopted and whose love and support has offered healing. We thank you for those fathers who as stepfathers freely choose the obligation of fatherhood and earn their stepchildren's love and respect. And we ask your special blessing on those fathers who've lost a child to death and who continue to hold these children in their hearts. We give thanks for those men who have no children but cherish the next generation as if they were their own. We pray for those men who have fathered us in their role as mentors and guides. We ask your blessings on those men who are about to become fathers. May they openly delight and guide their children. We continue to pray for those whose fathers have died but live on in our memories and whose love continues to nurture us. May the love of our earthly fathers draw us ever nearer to you and perfect us in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And would you lead us by your mercy also to forgive our fathers where they have failed and not pointed to you. Lord, would you come quickly and redeem all that's broken for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It is not my habit to draw attention to my body. I feel like there's a principle of modesty. Um, And yet, this shirt makes my wife giggle. 
and I like nothing more than to see a big smile on her face. So uh, you'll, forgive it, uh, you'll forgive me. <clears throat> um, I'm glad to be together with you this morning. Um, if you're new with us, it's a great day to be here because we're, we're kicking off a, uh, a new series. And um, we're going to be taking a look this summer um, in the book of 1 Samuel, if you want to navigate there. First um, Samuel, we're going to be in chapter 17, and that's on page 301 in the Blue Bibles. If you want to grab one of those, it'll be tucked under the chairs in front of you. Um, it's going to be helpful for you, I think, this morning to read along with me. Um, if you have been in church uh, any amount of time, First uh, Samuel 17 contains a story that I think you will be familiar with, uh, even if you only like came to VBS, Vacation Bible School as a child or something like that. This is a story that gets told pretty frequently. And uh, I wrestle when I come to passages that I suspect are going to be familiar to us. How do I approach this? Because I, I don't want us to, I don't want myself. I struggle with this personally. I won't even talk about teaching you guys. I struggle with, if I think I know the point of the story and how it's supposed to go, I don't read very carefully, right? I don't know if you have that problem, but that's, that's just me. And so uh, now as we look at this together, uh, I, I thought, okay, I can just summarize this, and this is a really beautiful story. It's really compelling. Uh, it's really exciting. And so we can probably like put on a lot of drama here and like really work it up. And I thought as, as helpful as that can be and as encouraging as that can be, maybe perhaps it would, it would be better for us to slow down a bit and actually take our time to read the verses. And as we read the verses, to, to, to consider that perhaps there's something here new for us to learn. Perhaps there are details that we've overlooked in the past. Perhaps there are, are specific phrases that for, there's going to be something in your life that it's just going to catch in a different way. And so I'm of the opinion that... Um, I actually, like, the, the best thing I can do for you is to read God's Word to you because He promises that His Word doesn't come void. Like, I've got no guarantees on any teaching that I would do, but if I, if I tell you what His Word says, then He says, like, it's going to do work. So that's my default today. Um, so if we're in first, cha- uh, first, Samuel, first, Samuel, <clears throat> first Samuel, chapter 17, um, I'd invite you to read with me. I'm going to read 1 through 16. Um, which is a, a kind of a large chunk, um, but it's going to set up the scene for us. It's going gonna, it's gonna to introduce some characters, give us some setting, um, and so that's, that's what we're doing here together. So let's read together. First Samuel, first, oh my gosh, this is going to be a problem. First Samuel, I know, of all the Bible names to not be able to say. Uh, the book that we're in, in chapter 17. <clears throat> Verse 1, now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sako, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sako and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in lines of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. 
And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine, 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, mourning and evening. So we'll pause there. I think we've got a setting. Uh, So let's talk about uh, some of the characters here that are introduced. Um, You've got the Philistines, okay? The Philistines are really an interesting historical anomaly. Like in the Bible, it seems like they come out of left field. They come out of nowhere. Just all of a sudden, Israel's constantly fighting with the Philistines. You're like, where did these people even come from? Like the whole uh, Genesis and Exodus, and like that's not even on the radar. They're not even one of the ites in the, in, the, in the promised land. But then when they get into the promised land, everywhere they turn, they're like running into these Philistines. And that's not just a biblical, like that, you get that impression from the biblical narrative, but that's actually the, the narrative of history is the same way. These Philistines were not entirely sure where they came from, except that they came from across the sea. And so all of a sudden, these people who maybe were from Greece got in boats and sailed, and they landed uh, in the five cities. They call them the five cities of the Philistines later on, but they land and take over these five cities. And they, their strength, their prowess is in the fact that they know how to um, uh, uh, weld, not weld, they know how to craft um, armor and, and weapons out of metal, not just bronze, but also you see here he's got an iron spear, right? So he's got a superior, they've got a superior technology, um, they're competent sailors, and uh, they're apparently not afraid of anything. And besides, there seems to be some kind of a, a genetic gift, a genetic anomaly where they have guys that are apparently just massive, just huge, um, and so we've got the Philistines, this, this big imposing army, 
Uh, and you've got Goliath, their champion, who's like decked out in all the armor. And if it sounds like it weighs a lot, it's because it, it weighs a lot. And if you're like, man, that spear sounds pretty big. It's like, because that's, that's the, the, the picture you're supposed to get. This guy was a giant. He was super tall, super strong, super armored, and super ripped, man. He's just like the CrossFit champion of the world, right? Um, so that's the Philistines and Goliath, and they come up and they draw up battle lines against Saul, who is, it doesn't say it in the text, but he's the king of Israel, which is kind of a new thing for them. We're, we're in a period of transition where uh, the, the 12 tribes of Israel had all kind of had their own, uh, their own leaders, and that period had not really gone really well. The, the, the book before this, the book of Judges, says that everybody just kind of did what was right in their own eyes, and you're like, well, that sounds like a good deal, except that every time somebody did what was right in their own eyes, it was actually the wrong thing, and it just created more and more heartbreak. Um, and it's, uh, it's not a fun book to do your devotions in. Um, but we're still kind of in that period, and the people like rebel against Yahweh, God who saved them from Egypt, and they say, like, we want a king because we're just trying to figure things out amongst our tribes. It's kind of like uh, we're kind of in a confederation, but we need like a unified monarchy. We need a king because that seems to be the way that government should work. And so they ask for a king, and God gives them a king in Saul. Um, and Saul is a guy who's described as like really tall. He's a head taller than every other Israelite, which you're like, oh, cool. Well, that, that guy looks pretty kingly. Like he, he looks like somebody that I would want to follow into battle. Um, and he was probably the oldest son of his father. Um, so he's the oldest, he's, he's, he's the heir apparent, uh, he, he is the tallest, and so the people are like really excited about Saul gets to be our king. And he has some battles, uh, and, um, and he, he, he demonstrates himself to be impatient. When they go up to battle, you're supposed to call out to God and ask God, like, should we go up to fight this battle or should we wait to fight another day? Like, what should we do? And they come up against the Philistines in an earlier chapter, and Saul's supposed to wait for the prophet to ask God what they should do, and, and he can't wait. So he just offers the offering himself to ask the question himself. And, and God says, listen, if you're not going to stay in your lane, like I made you the king, and if you're going to try to be the king and the prophet, like, that's not, that's not a trajectory. Like, I don't want those two things mixed together. Like, I don't, want, I don't want the church and the state to be completely wrapped up into one individual. I put you in one place with one set of responsibilities, and you don't get to come over here and play, and play in, in the church responsibility. So, so you're not going to be king anymore. Like, if you, can't, if you can't choose, like, then I'm going to make it so that you're not king. He's rejected by God as the king, but he still has the office. He still is the king, but he's tormented by it. He's got a job that he just hates, but he also knows that if I get, like, there's, there's only one way out of this job, and that's to die. Like, I've been appointed king, and so that means somebody else has to take over, but I don't want to die, but I also don't want to be king, and he's, he's tormented. Then you've got David, David's a young guy. Um, he is uh, small. He's probably the youngest of his father's sons. Um, and he ends up being a guy who can kind of play the guitar well. He plays the lute. He's a musician. And so when Saul's having a bad day and he's really up in his head and he's tormented, they call David to come in to play guitar for him, like his favorite playlist. Do you guys have like the, the I need to get all these feelings out playlist? Or is that just me? Yeah. 
Um, we were setting up chairs after Dignity Center last week, and uh, I just was in a mood, and so I put on some of my, my happy music, which to everybody else sounds really angry, um, and so we're like throwing these chairs, and, yeah. uh, and uh, Sophie, I'm surprised Sophie went to camp with us after that. She was like, what are you, who are you, what are you doing? Wait, so uh, my happy music sounds angry to everybody else, but if they're angry, then I don't have to be, so that's, that's kind of where I'm at. But do, like David was for Saul, his kind of happy playlist, right? So he comes in, and this is before recorded music, so if you wanted like music, if you wanted to listen to music, it wasn't like, like you hit a, hit a button on a box and music comes out. It was like, go call Jeff that plays the guitar so we can hear some music, you know what I mean? Um, so that's who we've got. We've got the Philistines, we've got Saul, and we've got David. We, those are our characters. And the other thing to pick up on is they are actually in the land of Israel. They're in land that belonged to Judah. So it's not like they're out looking for trouble. It's that the Philistines have come into their territory and are openly challenging them for 40 days. Like every day for 40 days, like I feel like that's a long time, right? That David or that Goliath comes out to challenge. And the king is just kind of waiting. I don't know what he's waiting for. Um, but let's, let's continue reading. in verse 17. And Jesse, David's father, said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now, Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went to and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So it shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, when David spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And we'll pause there. 
I'm frustrated by these verses because this is not how I remember the story going. Like the, the, the dialogue here is a little bit different, isn't it? And so this was challenging for me. Was it anybody else feel like this doesn't sound familiar? Just me? All right, just Tim. Me and Tim, we got this, bud. All right. Um, so there's this conversation. David comes. He's following. Uh, his brother thinks that he's showing up to watch him get killed. So, like, if you hear your older brother's going out to the battle lines, like, yeah, we need to go see this guy get a spanking. You know, like, like his older brother's seeing his younger brother come up, and he's like, you can't fight. Like, you're just coming here to watch us die. And, and you brought your popcorn and all this kind of stuff. And David's not there for entertainment. He's actually there because his dad sent him. He's, he's being obedient, um, and, he is, uh, and he's hearing what's going on. He's like, this war isn't the way that I thought it was going to be. So he's coming up, and there's this big party of people, and you can see across the valley to the other party of people. And he's like, okay, well, the, the, the army is going out to fight, so let me leave the stuff that I brought with the guy who's going to hold the things, and I'll go up and see what's going on. And while he goes up, he hears Goliath issuing his challenge, and he's like, well, who's going to fight for this? Who's going to fight this guy? Why? Who does this guy think he is that he can challenge the armies of the living God? Who, who does this guy, like, where does he get off? Doesn't he know what the living God did to the Pharaoh who's supposed to be God on earth? Doesn't he know what the living God did to Pharaoh in Egypt when we left? Doesn't he know that the living God is a good father who rains down bread for us even when we rebel against him constantly and are grumbling for years, decades of our life? Doesn't he know that the living God cast out the Canaanites from before us and we who were raised as slaves went into combat and won with inferior weapons faced against chariots which were the tanks of their day on feet? Who does this guy think he is? He's got a righteous indignation. We read together from James chapter 1, and James says uh, in verses 19 through 21 that, that we should be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And here David's watching this guy who presumably is just like cursing God and saying, Where, what are you, why are you guys letting this happen? Whose reputation gets us hot under the collar? Whose reputation gets us hot under the collar? I, I occasionally, occasionally my children will tell you I get angry. Whose reputation do we get hot under the collar? I, like the thing that really, like they're disrespectful to me, I can handle that, I get it. If they're disrespectful to, to, to my wife, like I really struggle with that because they don't know like who do you think you are don't you know what your mother has done for you um and so like but 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 that reveals something about our our attitude and she right, let me pause she wants me to tell you that she's not perfect i i have to tell you that but i don't believe it okay we can move on <clears throat> um whose reputation gets us hot under the collar are we offended when people dare to say something snarky to us like, who do you think you are? Why are you talking to me like that? 
Like, or do we get frustrated and defensive when people are disrespectful to us? Do we get frustrated and defensive when they're disrespectful to other people? Are we frustrated and defensive when they reject and scoff at God? Whose reputation are we looking out for? Which, we could put it a different way, and still kind of churchy words, so forgive me, but, but whose kingdom are we willing to defend? There's something in the way that David asks the question, what is it, what is it that the king will do for the man that kills this Philistine? That, that the guys are like, oh, he's, he thinks he's going to fight. Because they take his words at, right up to the king. Did you notice that? He did not, he did not to me, I'm reading the text, and I'm, I'm a real simple guy. I'm reading the text and going, he didn't say that he was going to fight. But he's just asking the question. Who does this Philistine think he is? What did the king say that he was going to do for the guy? And I wonder if he's like trying to pump the guys up. Like, hey guys, you are the trained men. Like, you are the army. Like, why don't you guys like take, put your eyes on the prize and go out there and win? If you're not willing to fight for God's reputation, maybe you should fight for the riches that you'll get and the freedom that you'll get. And as he perhaps is trying to encourage the others, uh, his words get back to the king that David's a person who's not, maybe not particularly interested in the riches, but certainly is willing to fight for the honor of Yahweh, the living God. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. (laughs) And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. If he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled, defied the armies of the living God." And David said, the Lord, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to him, go, and the Lord be with you. And then Saul clothed David with his armor. And he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I, I, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. There's a really interesting dynamic. There's some interesting contrasts in these verses to, to some other ones. Um, in, in chapter uh, 16, just before, when we kind of get introduced to David, they, they say that he is a, a skillful man. They describe him as a skillful man, somebody who uh, is skillful in the val- a, a man of valor and a man of war. Like that's in chapter 16. And now here, Saul's saying, you can't do that because you're young, you're a youth. 
Where in chapter 16, they called him a man, a man of valor and a man of war. In chapter 17, you're a youth and you can't go out to battle. And I, the Hebrews were not particularly interested in telling the story in order. And so I'm not sure if these are in chronological, like chapter 16 chronologically came before 17. But, but, but you see here, you see here an older person looking at a younger person going, you just, you just don't have it. You're not cut out for it. And there's a, a, there's a contrast between David who, who says he took off his armor. He put it off. Just one small, like not even a whole verse, half a verse. says He put, he put the armor off. And you've got Goliath who was massive and trained in war and gets four verses to describe all the armor that he wears. Like, Goliath is decked out and David's got nothing. But, and, and here's where I, I, I was challenged again, it's not, it's not that David was completely unprepared. He, he, he says, I've been in the field before, I've fought. I haven't fought against Goliath, but I've I, I fought against bears and lions. And I, Lions are big. Lions are not small cats. Like, their paws are like this big. <clears throat> and you fought against lions. Like, man, that's, that's not nothing. Bears? Oof. He tested the armor and the sword that was given to him, and he's like, this, I, I can't test this which tells me that he's not unfamiliar with some of these implements, but perhaps the sizing was wrong, or perhaps it was just something that he was not really familiar with. And I think that that tells us something particularly about the way that he had trained. I have not tested these. It means that uh, these, these implements were unfamiliar to him, which tells me that he's really careful about what he takes into battle. Because muscle memory and weights and balances are really important when you're doing one-to-one combat with somebody. Like, you need to know how long your sword is if you're going to go swing it at somebody. Because if you misgauge the length of it, or if you swing too hard, or you swing too softly, you lose your balance, you're suddenly exposed. Like, I get stressed out when I can't tell how close my car is coming to the car I'm trying to park by. And I feel like I've got pretty good death perception, right? But he's like, this, I haven't tested this. I haven't fought in this armor. Like, I can't go out there and do something brand new for the first time. I will die. So he's got, he's got wisdom. He's not unprepared, which is something I, that I don't think I'd ever really considered. Because in my head, the David that I'm thinking of is like a kid, right? But this is a guy that at least has enough smarts to say, it's not good for me to use a brand new weapon in a life and death situation. He's, I think, old enough to be able to fight, and he's young enough to actually do it. We rode the pedal carts this week. So it was a four-wheel, four-wheel cart, but you run it by pedals. And we ran for maybe half hour, and I got off that thing, and my knee was like jello. I'm like, what is wrong with my knee? I limped for the rest of the day. I'm in my mid-30s, guys, and you guys that are older are like, ugh, good for you. Like, I'm, I'm like, my body isn't doing the same thing. Like, I'm, I'm still, I still think I'm young. 
And, and like, I'm already starting to feel like some sense of like my body, and again, I, I haven't been landscaping in a long time either, so like, I feel like the strength that I used to have isn't there anymore, or like, my, I'm not sure like what's going on with my joints all the time, and that's a weird thing. But David is, young, is old enough to know how to fight and young enough to actually pull it off. And we also should be empowering the strength of youth. We, can, we who are seasoned, who fought the battles before, can look at a young guy who's ready to go off, charge into battle with no armor, and say, dude, you're, you're dead. Like, don't even try. It's not worth it. And we can look at folks that come back from camp that have just been in this, this fasting period, and, they're, and everything's new for them, and they're trying to figure it out and be like, don't worry, it'll all, like, you'll, you'll chill out, and you'll abandon everything. And listen, we need to empower the strength of youth. I was merely an observer for 98% of what happened with our students for the last week. They did not need me. They were in cabins, and they had two counselors, and their counselors had two counselors over them, and their counselor's counselors had another counselor over them. And nobody was older than 25. I'm looking out at a field of kids I'm going, where, where are the adults? Why is nobody broken yet? This is, this is clearly chaos, but like it's contained and it's, and it's orderly. And I'm looking at it from the mid-30s going, what? these are all children in this field. Somebody's going to die. And there are college students, college students who are harassing and corralling and encouraging and equipping these high school students. And I think, like, well, they don't have a seminary degree, and they're not really, they don't really know the Bible very well, and they're not really skilled in how to take care of high schoolers, and high schoolers are hard. And I'm looking at these college students going, you can't do this, and they just spent a whole week showing me that they could. And we need to get off of our high horse and empower the strength of youth, because I could not do that. I could not get up at 7.30 a.m. and go 100% full throttle until after midnight and then wake up another day and do it for six days straight. I don't have that kind of strength. But those college students, they were in it. And that was week two. And they've got four more weeks. We can look at young kids that are just like ready to take on the world and be like, dude, just chill, just chill, just chill. But who are we equipping? Who are we giving practice in battle? Who are we equipping? And then who are we empowering to actually just go and do it? I could have very easily walked into that cabin and be like, these kids don't know what they're doing. Like, let me show them how they do the thing. And then I could have just taken over. It would have killed me and they would have been defeated. But I could have done it. And so there was, there was so much tension in me those first couple days of like, I feel like I'm an accessory around here. And that's hard for me because I feel like I'm pretty cool and like I should contribute a lot. And I found myself in a situation where there wasn't a single person that needed me. This is hard because I feel like this story just lends itself so well to allegory that we can take these principles and we can pull stuff out of it. 
and, and I don't necessarily want to do that, but I do, like I'm looking at this going, they're making fun of him for being young, and I was in the same place this week. And it's funny how God makes me live my sermons before I get to say them to you. It's a little bit frustrating. We'll continue, and we'll, uh, we'll read here the battle in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. So it's not just Goliath, it's also the shield-bearer, who was also trained in battle. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He's got his his shepherd's staff with him. Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. (laughs) Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies, uh, I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then the David ran over and took over and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. Uh, pursue the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem but he put his armor in his tent the Lord saves not with sword and spear. The Lord saves not with sword and spear. This kid was wise beyond his years. He had the gall to look at a man who had left his hometown in Gath and come over to Ephraim, Judah, to David's hometown, to look him in the eye and say, you are not a threat to me. 
You're out here rattling your javelin and your spear. You're, you're spitting threats. You're, you're threatening to take over the couple of sheep that my father has left and he's left in my care. You threaten to burn and pillage and make us your servants. You are saying that I am in immediate physical harm and the thing that I come to you is to address the actual issue in the room. Not that you've come against me, not that you're threatening my family's security, not that you're a threat to the economy here, but that you have defied the Lord. Our big idea this morning is that God gives victory when we're fighting the right battle. God gives victory when we're fighting the right battle. David wasn't looking at Goliath and saying, like, this is my Second Amendment right to shoot you in the face. Like, I I have a right to defend my family and my property. That's not what this is about. This is about you came into our territory, which the land belongs to God. You came into God's house and are calling God names by your fake gods. You're cursing me by some fake gods. And I can't let that happen. You got me hot under the collar for the honor of Yahweh. It's not about the training. It's not about the discipline. that David had perspective to know what the right battle was. And there were plenty of distractions, right? He could have fought with his dad for sending him out as an errand boy. Don't you know that I play music for the king? Why are you sending me out to bring cheese? He, he could have fought his brother because his brother came at him. You're just out here trying to, to watch the show. He didn't fight his brother. He, he could have been mad at Saul. You call me a youth? You better see what I can do with this sling. You don't even know. Talking down to me. He went to Goliath, walked out into a valley to stand toe-to-toe with a guy who was significantly taller to him, but not even that. He overlooked the distraction of an entire Philistine army on the hill behind him. The Lord, God, gives victory when we fight the right battle. The problem is we often just spend a ton of energy fighting the wrong battle. Let me give you an example. This This is part of a larger conversation but it was something that just light bulbs came on for me this week. Um, we're in an era where anxiety is just crippling, where, where, where people constantly are wrestling with anxiety. And anxiety seems like it is the cause. It seems like that is the battle. I just don't want to feel anxious anymore. And I was listening to a conversation, and somebody said, yeah, the problem is sometimes we're anxious because we have sinned and we're afraid that we're going to get caught And so we have all these anxious feelings and we attack the anxiety trying to fix the anxiety when the anxiety is a symptom of the disease which is the sin that we're trying to hide. And it's not always that. I'm not saying that every anxiety is is the root of sin, but I am saying that there's some times where the anxieties are things that you have done on your own, myself included. But God gives victory when we're fighting the right battle. If we attack anxiety... When the problem is sin, and we're mad at God for not fixing the anxiety. When he says, I've already already fought and won the battle over sin, why are you just wallowing in it? 
That's not your master anymore. You don't need to serve that. That's not going to give you life. I will give you life. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are we fighting the right battle? There's one more layer of this, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to throw it out here because I've got, I've got seven more weeks to unpack it. The people, I think, are really, really keyed in on the Philistines, you know, that army at the doorstep trying to come in. <clears throat> but they did not realize that the actual problem that God is beginning to address in this chapter isn't the invading armies, but it is a compromised leader inside Israel. All of what God is doing here is setting David up so that when he steps into the, the throne, like when he becomes a king, everybody's on, on Team David. But the people were, were looking, they were locked in on the Philistines going, this is the biggest threat, and they were overlooking the fact that their, that their king, Saul, had sat on the back lines for 40 days while that, uh, while that uncircumcised Philistine called curses to Yahweh. So God's given victory not just for David because he has fixed it on Goliath, but he's given victory to David because he cares for his people. And there are layers of this that I can't even wrap my head around. And sometimes when I go to God, I say, I think I want to pray for this, but I'm afraid that if I pray for this and you give it to me, it'll mess something else up. So I don't know what the best thing is to do. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I can't see what you see. And I don't love how you love. And I just need to trust you, my heavenly Father, that you know what's best for me and for my family and for these students and for this city and for the high school and for my workplace and for... So would you do it? And would you use me in whatever way I'm most helpful? And I don't pretend to actually know what that is most of the time. But God gives victory when we're fighting the right battle. Are we investing in the right battle lines? Are we, are we throwing troops on the right battle lines? We get to choose where we put our attention. Are we investing in the right battle lines? Where, where might we be hiding at the back of the army and just kind of waiting for somebody else to fix the problem? And where are we up on the front lines hacking away on a front that does not matter? Because God gives victory when we're fighting the right battle. Fifty-five. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, <laughs> whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I, I, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. As soon as David returned from striking down the, the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And David said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. That's, that's a goofy way to end, right? I, I, hesit I almost just closed, prayed and, prayed and closed before reading that to you. Like, that's a strange way to end. I don't know if, if uh, Saul's trying to do the calculation on who he's going to give the tax breaks to. Like, okay, he won this, now I've got to make sure I pay, like, make sure that he gets the right 
whatever. I don't know if Saul's doing the calculation on what kind of a dowry he can expect, because if you, if you get the, the, the daughter of a king, like you, you've got to pay. What, so does this guy have a dowry? I don't, know, I don't know what Saul's motivation here is, but I think it's fascinating that at the, at the conclusion of this battle, the question is, who is his father? What family does he belong to? And my suspicion, church, is that if we can set our minds to fight the right battle, to let, to let other things that are important but are our periphery, can we let those things go so that we can focus on what's most important? And as we're fighting and as God's giving victory, the world might look at us and say, who is their family? What is their, who is their father? Because he's not of this world. Jesus, in his interrogation before he's crucified, in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. The Lord does not save with sword and spear, but God gives victory when we're fighting the right battle. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ways that it challenges us, even, even the stories that we're familiar with. I thank you um, that you have recorded it um, and that you do work in our hearts so that when we come back to something we've been through before, it's, it's almost like it's brand new again. And so, Lord, I pray that, that, that seeing that this morning, that you would give us a desire to come to you and your word this week to explore passages that maybe we thought we already understood. Would you guide us by your Spirit and how to walk with you, how to talk with you this week? Lord, would you guide us and direct our attention as we think about the battles we may be fighting? Lord, if there is a root of sin in any of the struggles that we're having, that God, you would help us to acknowledge that and to turn it over to you. Lord, if it's not an issue of sin, that God, you would give us the wisdom to know how much energy to put into it. That by your grace, (laughs) folks may ask of us who our Father is. And that you may find faithful children who honor you whatever field you put them in. I thank you for this day. Thank you for these folks. Thank you for what it is that you are doing in us and among us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.